So binge eating disorder, if you put 10 people in a room and said, is this kind of a large amount of food to eat in a setting or not? Like for the most part, we can agree upon what's a large amount of food, even though that is loosely defined. So binge eating disorder, you eat a large amount of food in a short amount of time for the given setting. For example, eating a giant meal on Thanksgiving where you feel like you're going to vomit, you ate so much, that's not binge eating disorder. So it's eating a lot in a short amount of time, a lot for the setting. It is accompanied by a feeling of a loss of control. Welcome to Salad with a Side of Fries. I'm your host, Jen Trepic, talking wellness and weight loss for real life. We're here to clear up the myths, misinformation, bad science, and marketing to teach you how to eat and how to cheat. Are you ready? I'm having salad with a side of fries. Hey, friend. Welcome back to another episode of Salad with a Side of Fries. I'm your host, Jen Trepic. Of course, I'm always here with you every week. And I have to confess, I cannot believe that it has taken over two years of the podcast to specifically address this topic. So today we are talking about binge eating, and I have the perfect person to enlighten us. As an obesity medicine physician coming from a primary care background, she understands the impact of excess weight on health as well as on self-esteem, employment, relationships, mood, and productivity. Every day we make a myriad of decisions about food, movement, lifestyle, and all of these choices impact our weight. She acts as both a docent and a coach educating and guiding individuals as they navigate these decisions for themselves and for those in their community. She's board certified in internal medicine since 1997 and obesity medicine since 2013. As the founder of Ulta Medical and Smart Weight Loss Coaching, she has an opportunity to impact people's weight and health every day. As she says, with this role comes a responsibility to refute the shame and stigma often attached to excess weight. An elevated BMI is not a moral failing, it's a medical condition. Nobody chooses to struggle with their weight. Her work is all about helping people off that struggle bus. So you see why she and I see eye to eye and why we vibe. So I'm thrilled to add salad with a side of fries to her list of media appearances. So please help me welcome Lisa Olson. <laughs> Woo! Thank you, Jen. It's so exciting to be here. Thank you for being here and joining us. Last time we spoke, it was now it feels like ages ago. How have you been? (laughs) Great. Thank you. I've probably had a salad and a side of fries since we last talked. So, yeah, I bet, right? (laughs) (laughs) It is definitely a go to meal for sure. Yum. (laughs) Right. I could go for that right now. So, we will start with your story. I always like to start with everybody's story, but really quick, let's tell our members what they're getting this week. So members, your recipe is for seared tuna with tomato, olive, and caper salad. So I think people are often nervous to make tuna steaks at home. I promise you, you can do it. This recipe walks you through step-by-step. Plus, it's the perfect light, refreshing meal for this time of year. And members, it is June, the third month of the quarter, which means it's time for your quarterly live Q&A. So we're going back to the one-on-one format so you can click the link in your email to book whatever time option is most convenient for you. I'm so excited to connect. If you're a newer member, this will be our first chat. Or if you're a longstanding member, I am thrilled to hear your updates. So can't wait. So if you'd like to chat live, just you and me, which I would love nothing more, or you think this recipe sounds good, you can get it all by becoming a member. Here's how. Go to glow.fm slash salad with a side of fries for just $10 a month. You get weekly recipes, a monthly article or tool, extra discounts from me and our partners, plus access to the live Q&A sessions. It's a total deal. When you take advantage of the full offerings, you save far more than that $10 cost. So seriously, a no-brainer way to show yourself that your health is a priority. Plus, your membership supports this podcast and this community so we can continue bringing you new episodes and experts every week. So remember, all you have to do is go to glow.fm slash salad with a side of fries or just click the link in the show notes. Then you don't have to remember anything. It's there. Once you click that link, it's about three clicks, a little typing for your email and payment method, and that's it. You're all set. You will get this week's recipe for the seared tuna with tomato, olive, and caper salad and details for your one-on-one live Q&A. 
All right. Lisa. So yes. like I mentioned, I want to start with your story. <laughs> Wait, before we do, can we start with tuna steak, seared tuna? That sounds so delicious. And I just want to say it's probably in your recipe, but if not, I had an epiphany when I realized that I had grown up in this very gender biased world where the men did the grilling and the women yes. did the work in the kitchen. <laughs> And so I thought grilling was this very complicated man only skill set <laughs> that somehow I was incapable of learning. Until one day I was like, wouldn't it be cool if I also learned how to grill? So I want to say maybe, I mean, it was probably 20 years ago that I finally walked outside, powered on the gas grill, seared a tuna steak in four minutes total, two minutes on each right. side, and then realized my kitchen didn't smell like fish. It took me two seconds to clean the grill. It was so easy. And now I live in Chicago. I will still happily put on snow boots and my level five coat, which is the warmest <laughs> coat ever yep. that would keep me warm in the Arctic. And I walk out to the grill 12 months out of the year to sear tuna steaks because it's so easy. So I love that that's your recipe. That's great. <laughs> Thanks. I love that story. So I want to hear your story from growing up. Like, did you always want to become a doctor? And then going from primary care to obesity medicine, like, tell us about that journey. Oh, thanks for asking. So like many people who go into medicine, doctors, nurses, I think it was from a very young age that I knew that's what I wanted to do. And so that was very apparent to me. It was always a tremendous interest in, of mine, how to eat healthy, you know, exercise when it was an interest. But one thing that was really different for me growing up is I had one parent who was all deep in the diet culture yep. and, you know, wearing leg warmers and working out to Jane Fonda video. <laughs> this is way back in it my It was childhood. recently, I think, was it, it was recently the 40th anniversary of Jane Fonda's No way. Video. Wow. That sounds believe? about right. I yeah. Know. So I was, you know. Anyway, sorry. Did not mean to interrupt. <laughs> and yeah, no, it's no problem. So anyway, and then I had another parent who, I mean, listen, both of my parents cared about their weight and cared about their health, but they were in two different situations. One parent had a high BMI from the time he was a toddler. So my dad probably had some genetic influences. You know, who mm -hmm. knows what else influenced him from such a young age, probably a lot of genetics. And then my mom was really blessed in the genetics department, but then also embraced trying to learn how to eat healthy, being very active. You know, she's still in her mid seventies running half marathons and doing rock climbing and biking the 50 or hundred mile MS bike-a-thon each summer. So, you know, they live in these two different worlds. And I would say I was somewhat in the middle where I was very self-conscious about my weight. There was a big emphasis on weight in my family, in my community, in the magazines that I would read, you yeah. know, and then later that became online. And it just seemed really important to be doing all of the, you know, like what's the secret best diet. So I was always in a program from the time I, you know, I remember going to the fitness center with my mom when I was 12 and going to take off pounds sensibly with my dad at the local public library where we would be in a dark, depressing room in the basement of the library and turn in our paper and pencil weight trackers and then get on a scale in front of everybody. And you know how much I weighed at that time? 115 pounds. Yeah. And think about that. I thought I needed to be in a weight loss program, 115 pounds. I mean, later I was 40 pounds heavier and had to work backward from that, you know, in adulthood in my 20s. But I'll just say this is very typical of that toxic diet culture that so many of us grow up with. And mom and dad, if you're listening, like, I love you. It all worked out okay. Right. We're all good. <laughs> 
<laughs> it really wasn't them. They were victims of it too. Totally. Know, trying to trying to be healthy and being supportive and worrying about not wanting me to struggle as I got older. So trying to prevent weight problems. But we were all in that toxic diet culture. And it creates a lot of trauma for people. And I I really saw firsthand a lot of the shame, the embarrassment, the self-blaming that people in my family and you know, extended family and you know, neighbors, friends, people who struggled with their weight. I could hear how people would make fun of themselves or criticize themselves before someone else had a chance to do it. It's very heartbreaking. And I hear that from my clients and people in my smart weight loss coaching program all the time. The way that we speak to ourselves is often stripping us of any confidence or belief that it's possible for us to get healthy. But of course it's possible. It's possible for all of us. And it doesn't matter. The way I think about it is it doesn't matter if someone's been able to make healthy choices before. Like today is a new day and you don't have to be perfect. I mean, listen, I know you and I share so many of the same beliefs, which is why the title of your podcast, (laughs) Salad with a Side of Fries, just warms my heart every time I see it. I got goosebumps when I just said it. That's how much I like it. (laughs) Seriously. But, you know, it's that more relaxed. We don't have to be perfect. We can love ourselves even if we sometimes have fries. We don't, you know, like just being compassionate. So growing up in this toxic diet culture, that was not the idea. So I was always trying to be on a diet or be in a program or be all in or forget it. And I will say, and I don't share this too widely with people. I don't know why I'm starting to. I realize that there's value in sharing my own story. I think I just thought no one would care or be interested. But I definitely am a bingey person. Did I have full-blown binge eating disorder? I don't think I do now. Or I think I would say it's in remission or I manage it really well because over decades, I've learned all the skills and strategies as I help learn them for other people and develop them to help my clients. It's also helping me. But I would say as a teenager and a young adult, for sure, I had binge eating disorder. For sure, I did. So this topic is so dear to me because I know how ashamed people are when they have this. And often, they don't even know it's a medical condition. It often runs in families. There's a genetic component. We don't know all the details of that science yet, but we know some that this often runs in families. And people rarely talk to their physician or nurse practitioner or physician assistant, their healthcare provider about it because they think something's just wrong with them. They lack willpower, they're impulsive, whatever kind of things they're telling themselves. It doesn't cross people's minds to say, hey, I'm struggling with this problem. What have you got? Because there's a lot out there. There's medication that helps. We're going to get to all of those pieces. I want to track back to something. Sure. You know, so you start as a primary care physician and then transitioned into obesity medicine. And you're on the faculty at Northwestern School of Medicine. So I have to ask this question. What was not part of your medical education (laughs) that you wish was? Anything about nutrition? (laughs) Facts. True. Yes. Right. And so what do you focus on making sure, like, if there's one thing your medical students, you know, walk away with after working with you, like, what's the one thing you want to make sure they understand? Oh, it's so interesting that you ask that because you know what? For all of the railing I do against the lack of nutrition teaching in medical school, the one thing I would ask people to walk away from is some compassion and understanding for the fact that nobody chooses to have binge eating disorder. Nobody chooses to carry excess weight. Neither one of these are a disease of 
laziness or lack of discipline or lack of organization. I mean, I help people who are CEOs of companies. Yep. These people are highly disciplined, highly organized. They have great willpower. Yeah. It's a disease and it but that doesn't mean you're powerless against it. We can treat it. But that's what I think I would want medical students to know, but I also would want your listeners to know. If you have binge eating disorder and I know later we'll get into what how yeah. do you know if you have right it. exactly but, you know, I think most people kind of know like well I am kind of bingy yeah some people know without even yet knowing the definition <laughs> right. it is something that it should be treated no differently than if you had asthma if you had left knee osteoarthritis if you had migraine headaches or psoriasis, or diabetes, heart disease, cancer. Like these are just medical conditions and we don't judge any of them except weight and binge eating. I mean, yeah. there's, you know, there's yeah. of course bias against mental health diagnoses and other things to some degree as well. But I would say like, let go of all that stigma. And there is this yeah. wonderful organization that, I mean, I'm not affiliated with other than I am their greatest fan, but the Obesity Action Coalition, which uh -huh. is this organization that really advocates for people who carry excess weight. They lobby, you know, if you want to know why are weight loss meds covered now when they really weren't historically, and they're still not across the board, but much more so, why do people have more rights and protections from discrimination? Why do insurance carriers more and more often have to cover things related to excess weight? It's because the Obesity Action Coalition is sending lobbyists to Congress to say, hey, you know, we're not discriminating against people with heart disease. Why are we discriminating against someone because they carry excess weight? So they also really focus on reducing stigma, bias, yep. systemically, like, you know, in our yeah. country. So. Which is huge. Anyway, I know I'm way off yeah. on a tangent again. No, it's, no, but I could go down that rabbit hole. I mean, maybe we'll do that as another topic, you know, for another day. So like we said, we're going to focus on binge eating today. And as you just said, perhaps our best place to start is defining it. But mm -hmm. I'm also, I think a majority of the population is probably subclinical binge eating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? That's right. Um, but so help us understand, I mean, defining binge eating and then Where's sort of the line between binge eating behavior and binge eating disorder? Yeah, that is such a great question. I know I always say I'm kind of bingey. <laughs> so, I mean, as I said, I've come a long way. I'm maintaining 40 pounds less than my highest weight for many, many years, but still I would call myself bingey. So how do we define it? So binge eating disorder, if you put 10 people in a room and said, is this kind of a large amount of food? to eat in a setting or not. Like for the most part, we can agree upon what's a large amount of food, even though that is loosely defined. So binge eating disorder, you eat a large amount of food in a short amount of time for the given setting. For example, eating a giant meal on Thanksgiving where you feel like you're gonna vomit, you ate so much, that's not binge eating disorder. So it's eating a lot in a short amount of time, a lot for the setting. It is accompanied by a feeling of a loss of control. So what does that mean? It's you're saying to yourself like, oh, I should stop or, okay, just one more bite and then I'm going to be done. Or, oh man, I, I'm not going to go back to the pantry and get anything else after this. So there's this sense of a loss of control. You're just kind of driven to keep eating. We'll talk more about like what makes people stop with a binge. And then in addition, there is a sense of shame or guilt or remorse or embarrassment. People are very hard on themselves, but that's a feature of it. Because if you're just going out and eating large quantities of food and being like, oh, I can't stop. This is great. But you're like, bring on some more. And, you know, you have no problem with it. That's actually not binge eating disorder. There is something about the emotional relationship with this binging situation that is a key component of the definition of binge eating disorder. And then also, there's just the fact that you have to do it with enough regularity. 
and this is where you get into like, what's just being bingy and what's technically binge eating disorder. But let's say you have been binging, eating a large amount of food in a short period of time with a sense of loss of control and feelings of shame, remorse, guilt, embarrassment afterward. And you're doing it at least once a week for at least three months. That's the definition of binge eating disorder. But if you're doing it for two and a half months, I think it's, you know, we can right. call it a day. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's sort of the technical definition. And, you know, these definitions get, it's so interesting in this day and age, it's all like, can you check a box so your insurance company reimburses for a visit for binge eating disorder? Like that's sometimes right. these criteria seem very strict. Maybe you only do it you know, every other week or once a month. But once you get going, you know, it's hard to stop and you have all the other features of it. So I try to broaden my definition and recognize if someone is having out of control episodes of eating large amounts of food that bring on feelings of distress, to me, I don't really care what the frequency is. If it is creating distress, then they're bingy or they have binge eating disorder or they're somewhere on that spectrum and they require help and support and recognition that this isn't their fault. It's not a moral failing, but there are things that we can do for it. Yeah. So I think it's far more common than people realize. And I think it's also often misidentified, right? Why do you think it is so common and misidentified? Oh, I love that you asked that. So it is actually the most common eating disorder in this country, much more binge eating disorder than anorexia, bulimia, other disordered eating. And so I always, in the same way I say like, hmm, it seems a little bingy whether or not a person has binge eating disorder, or are you feeling a little bingy? Similarly, you may or may not have an exact eating disorder, but for all of these, they can sometimes be lumped under disordered eating, whether yep. or not you fit the exact criteria to check the box. So binge eating disorder, definitely the most common of the eating disorders by a long shot. And my opinion about why it is so under-recognized and under-diagnosed is because of the shame and the blame that people have. Again, they don't even realize you know, if you're wheezing, you're like, <gasps> okay, you know, you have a lung problem and you have to go to the doctor. If you can't close up the ice cream and put it back in the freezer until you finish the entire carton, which by the way, I'm using that example because I have been there myself, you know, you just feel like what's wrong with me. You know, I'm going to just use an expression that many of my clients use and I've used on myself. Like I am being such a pig. Why am I doing this? Why can't I stop? It's so embarrassing. People would never want to tell their doctor about it mm -hmm. or their healthcare provider. And so I think it's super underreported, super yeah. underreported. Mm -hmm. For sure. So I want to get into you know, properly identifying and understanding what contributing factors are after a quick message from our partner for this episode, Layered sure. Jewelry. The modern woman is multifaceted, taking on many important roles in various aspects of her life. Inspired by her own multi-layered life as a busy mom, trendsetter, an entrepreneur, and influencer, Amber Ridinger McLaughlin set out to create a line of luxury jewelry that lets women create their unique style and celebrate their own beautiful layers. Layered is luxurious and affordable, the perfect combination for the modern woman. Layered allows you to mix, match, stack, and layer pieces that make you feel empowered and beautiful. Each piece is handcrafted to be unique and exquisite just for you. So you guys, I really cannot say enough about Layered. It's my favorite way to treat myself. Their spring collection is called Custom Capsule Collection. It is gorgeous. My new staple is the Cora Oval Cut Solitaire Pendant. It's on this like micro cable chain by itself. It's like simple and elegant. And then it's perfect when you layer it with other pieces. To top it off, this necklace is only $89.95. And that's before your 10% off and free shipping for being a salad with a side of fries listener. So simply text the word layered to 844-947-4846. You'll receive the link and coupon code right to your phone. Again, simply text the word LAYERED to 
4846 to get this handcrafted, luxurious yet affordable jewelry at 10% off plus free shipping. This is a toll-free number. Standard text and data rates may apply. All right, Lisa. So what are, you mentioned genetics before. You mentioned that it's treatable. So I guess the question is like, as you said also, it can feel like this personality flaw, but it is a medical condition. So what does everybody really need to know about what's going on in these moments of a binge or in this behavioral pattern? Yeah. So you kind of lobbed me a question right before the <laughs> layer jewelry. <laughs> so I want to answer that and yeah. then come back into this one. So you were asking, you know, like who's getting it? So the genetics, yeah. that's one thing. So we know about susceptibility to binge eating disorder. So what makes people vulnerable to it? So one thing that I find really interesting is that although binge eating disorder is more common in people who carry excess weight, it can happen with, to people who have a perfectly normal weight, normal by BMI. I have even taken care of people who are quite thin, who have binge eating disorder. And interestingly, a smaller percentage of people than you might think who have excess weight have this. So maybe people have an image that, oh, you know, if you're a woman who weighs 250 pounds, you must be binging. And I would say, yeah, you're probably not binging, actually. You know, like just when we look at the numbers, probably not. Most people that I see for weight loss, they're not binge eaters. It's a sliver. So what the exact number is, I think is totally unknown because yeah. I'll read anywhere from 10% of people who carry excess weight have binge eating disorder, 30%. I read smaller numbers. It could be as low as 3%. You know, I think we just don't know. But it is not 100% of people. It's not even 50% of people who carry excess weight who have binge eating disorder. So, okay, people with binge eating disorder come in any size. They can come in any age, but definitely we see it more in younger people, people in their teens, people in their 20s, people in their 30s, as you get, and you know, even into middle age. As people get older, it is less common. So fewer elderly people have binge eating disorder than middle-aged or younger people. Here is an interesting nugget. We also see more binge eating disorder in people with diabetes. And I think it's probably because there is this constant, I want to say almost obsession that we have with what they're eating. Yeah. They might be turning a spotlight on their food and rightfully so, right? If you have diabetes, what you eat really matters, but they're, everyone around them is turning a spotlight on their food. Their healthcare providers are turning, you know, it's just, even if you are not obsessing about food to begin with, if you have a diagnosis about diabetes, there's a lot of food talk that comes along with that. Yeah. And so binge eating disorder goes up in frequency when people have diabetes. I didn't know that until fairly recently. I think it's super interesting. And then there's also a link with binge eating disorder with people who have had any sort of trauma, particularly complex trauma, which is sort of like ongoing trauma in childhood, or very formative and difficult childhood experiences related to critical comments about your body, your weight, your shape, your eating habits. So an example of that might be, here's one place where I check myself. I have two kids. One's a very healthy eater, but likes treats too. One likes all the ultra processed foods. And so of course, I'm super careful not to talk about weight not to ever talk about like going on a diet or anything like that. But I do talk about food a lot with her. So, you know, that's a very formative thing in childhood. I'm always like, what was your vegetable? <laughs> I mean, listen, I'm outing myself. I, it's a struggle for yeah. any parent who has a kid that's got a lot of cravings for ultra processed foods that only wants to eat butter noodles and chicken fingers. And, you know, you can say, well, how do they get those things? Well, she has a bicycle and babysitting money. <laughs> you know, she gets it. Believe me, her friend just gave her a giant pack of Twizzlers. You know, okay, so 
She's probably going to chow down on that on the bus ride home. So if I'm always talking about food, like I'm not saying anything about her body. Her body's beautiful. I'm not saying anything critical, but I'm always like, what's your vegetable? What's your fruit? Like you haven't had any protein in like seven days. (laughs) We got to do something. There's a lot of emphasis on food and that can contribute to binge eating disorder. And Mm -hmm. I think maybe that contributed to my own binge eating disorder as a later teen and young adult, all the emphasis on weight and food and eating. So that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I have so many clients. This is really interesting. So many people come to me and they have a story. Often it's something that happened decades ago. Their father made a comment about their weight. Their PE teacher made a comment about their weight. They had to get on a scale at school in front of other people. And, you know, the school nurse was writing down everyone's weight or calculating everyone's BMI. The family physician concerned about weight, maybe in a child who hasn't hit their growth spurt yet, or, you know, maybe legitimately is carrying excess weight, the way a pediatrician or a family doctor frames the conversation about weight. People come to me decades later, remembering exactly like what they were wearing and exactly the words the doctor said to them and how they cut through their heart like a knife and created so much shame. And so those kind of experiences create a lot of secretive eating. So this is how binge eating often looks. Nobody, I mean, I shouldn't say nobody, maybe somebody is, but I will say I have not worked with anyone who is binge eating, you know, before work or before school at eight in the morning, you know, with the family sitting around the breakfast table or, you know, binge eating during dinner. Binge eating is usually something that people do in secret. That's not part of the definition, but that's part of my experience. People often have a significant other or a spouse or a roommate who has no idea that they have binge eating disorder because they hide it. They hide food. They eat in secret. I mean, I do this too. I know what my one thing is, one thing that I still sometimes struggle with, and that is vanilla ice cream. I don't buy it for myself, but other people in my family buy it. And if it's in the freezer, believe me, I'm not binging on it in front of everyone else. That is a private moment when, you know, if I have a a meeting cancel and no one's home, kids are at school, and I, I feel the lure of that ice cream calling me from down in the kitchen, that might be a moment or late at night, late at night or during the middle of the night. That's an interesting disordered eating or eating disorder, depending on the degree of it. Night eating disorder is a thing. And so a lot of people with binge eating disorder will binge in the evening or late at night. And some people occasionally, although this gets more into night eating disorder, will wake up and binge, which is really interesting. But what distingu- one thing that, that distinguishes binge eating disorder from something like bulimia is there aren't compensatory mechanisms to make up for it. So people with binge eating disorder are not making themselves vomit. If it never crossed your mind and you're listening to this and you have binge eating disorder, don't try vomiting. It really isn't going to change anything. So that just adds a new layer of problem to it, but it doesn't change, you know, the weight or anything. So bulimia is when people are vomiting or doing using laxatives or doing excessive exercise to compensate for a binge with binge eating disorder. It's just the binge with no compensatory activities. So I know so, I like went way down. No, 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 <laughs> Sorry, I'm with Jen. you. I'm with okay. you. So let's say someone's identified that they exhibit binge behavior, whether yes. it's, you know, to the extent or frequency of qualifying as binge eating disorder or not. What do we do next? How do we start to address this and sort of move the needle? Yes. Thank you for asking. It's so important. So I think of many different facets to help people with binge eating disorder, just like excess weight. You know, there's not one size fits all in terms of what intervention is going to work for which person. And there is also, you know, not just one right answer. The more you piece together all of the things that might help a person, the you know, the better the result. So in the same way with excess weight, 
we treat it like the same way we treat diabetes. We talk about lifestyle, eating healthy, getting exercise, working on healthy habits, creating behavioral change around healthy habits. But then also if someone has diabetes, we're also using medicine to manage their blood sugar. Why? Because they have better health outcomes if we use lifestyle modification and medication. And so the same is true for excess weight. You know, if your BMI is in the 30s, the 40s or higher, you've been carrying excess weight for a number of years and you haven't gotten it off with lifestyle intervention. Come on, don't hold your feet to the fire and just be mean to yourself and say, I just have to try harder. It's not about that. Like you're just not on full appropriate treatment. Support and coaching and counseling and therapy, whatever all the different things are, you might want to try to work on the lifestyle part of things in conjunction with medicine is helpful. So I'm really, you know, it's, I always find it tricky to talk about medication and binge eating disorder. I'm huge on lifestyle. Believe me, this is why I'm a certified life and weight loss coach. In addition to being a physician, because I think the mind is the secret sauce. There's actually data that says if we coach people on lifestyle modification, a really good, robust coaching program, we take another group of people and we just put them on weight loss medicine or a third group of people where they do both combined. I mean, it's not rocket science that when you do both combined, people do better lifestyle support, behavioral changes and medication. But the really interesting thing is if you want to know who does next best, it's the people who do the lifestyle modification. Medicine's the worst <laughs> out of those three. The combo's the best, then lifestyle, then medication alone. So just popping yep. a pill is not the easy way out with weight or with binge eating or with diabetes or with high cholesterol or with anything. You got to do the other stuff too. So similarly with binge eating disorder, there's an FDA, one, one FDA approved medication for binge eating disorder, but there are other medications that are used off label for binge eating disorder. So I'm not going to be a commercial for any particular medication. Other than just to say, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh, I just try to like white knuckle it and tell myself to quit it and pull it together as a way to manage my binging, you know, how about some self-compassion, learn some self-coaching that might help you, some skills and strategies, and consider the fact that medication is a game changer for many people. So with those, what's the mechanism in the body that those medications work on particularly binge eating? Oh, it's such a good question. We don't actually know all the answers to that question. Like the science is not perfectly clear. And sometimes this is kind of interesting. Sometimes we learn about things anecdotally. So for example, I'm going to talk about a medicine called topiramate. Topiramate was developed as an anti-seizure medication. It was great for controlling seizures. But guess what? People who had chronic migraines who were taking it for seizures were like, my seizures are being treated, but by the way, I haven't had a migraine since I went on this medicine. So then the manufacturers went back and got FDA approval to use topiramate for migraine prevention. Guess what? Everyone who took it for migraine prevention was like, hey, my migraines are so much better. And guess what? I'm losing weight. Sure enough, they were like, okay, let's go back and study it for weight loss. And now topiramate is one component of a weight loss medication that's FDA approved for chronic use for weight loss. The same kind of thing has happened with binge eating disorder with that particular medication. A lot of people are like, okay, whether or not I needed to lose weight, my binging feels better. I don't have that loss of control that I originally had. I can listen to my own self-coaching. It's like it just dials down the drama and gives you a little power back. And that's what other medications that are used on and off-label for binge eating do. It's all in the brain. And so the parts of our brain that are involved in weight regulation, urges and desires, these parts of our brain are influenced by the different medications that are used to treat binge eating disorder, either on and or off-label. And it makes sense, right? You know, it is a neurotransmitter issue. It's a brain issue. And this is, there's so much great science that we now understand about excess weight. And I think we're going to learn a lot more about 
binge eating, the science related to that. You know, we can draw a diagram of the brain and say, ghrelin goes up, then you're hungrier. You know, you're less sensitive to leptin, but you have more of it when you carry excess weight. You know, what's happening with your PYY, with your POMC and CART neurons? Like we know all of these different things about neurochemistry and neurophysiology that help us understand why weight loss is not just a willpower problem or weight, excess weight is not a willpower problem. I think the door is slowly opening for us to learn more about that kind of stuff with binge eating. But we know that some of these medicines that work in the brain also help with binge eating. And in fact, one of them was developed as an ADHD medication. So for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and then, you know, also found like, oh, it helps with binging too. Got it. And so let's talk about, you know, we've talked about that shame and the emotional side and almost what creates the binge is almost the energy behind it, right? Yeah. And you've mentioned a couple times the idea of like some self-coaching techniques. So what are maybe two or three things that somebody could, and like we said, you know, not one thing doesn't work for everybody, but what are maybe right. two or three things that somebody could try after listening to this? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. That's such an, an excellent question, a critical question for us to talk about. So one of the things is I'm going to just offer your listeners the word practice. I'm practicing blah, 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 the things we're going to talk about. When you do that, you create a little softness and you create a little space for yourself not to get it right from the beginning. So if you have practiced for a decade of binging, feeling some sort of emotion or having some sort of thought and you start getting that itchy feeling, like for me, it's like, I know that ice cream is down there. I start feeling kind of itchy, kind of restless, having a hard time focusing or concentrating on other things. Like I feel like I'm being pulled down to the kitchen by a magnet. You know, so I would say to myself, hey, it's okay. I'm practicing sitting with this desire without acting on it. I'm just going to practice and I can do hard things. So this is just one example, but I like to do that. This is one of my favorite techniques, just practicing sitting with the urge, practicing sitting with desire, acknowledging it, describing it. And reminding yourself that there are other things that are hard that you can do. So what it sounds like for me is, yes, brain, thank you for reminding me that there is ice cream downstairs. I gotcha. But remember, I'm practicing sitting with the urge for ice cream without acting on it. I feel a little restless. I feel it in my chest. I feel it's not really palpitations in my chest or a racing heart, but just like maybe a little fluttering, a little discomfort. I feel restless. I don't feel relaxed, feel maybe a little tense, like almost emotionally itchy. (laughs) That's how it feels to me. So I describe it. It might seem very woo-woo, like kind of silly. I'll just tell you that when people go through this exercise, it's been studied. It's helpful to go through this. And then I like to remind myself, listen, I do not have to practice sitting with this urge until 6 a.m. tomorrow morning Because actually we know that urges and desires and cravings and compulsions to eat, like they have a natural lifespan. So they're going to grow and they're going to peak and then they're going to start to diminish. And for each of us, it's different how long that lasts. It might last for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, but I'm probably not going to be like clutching the edge of my blanket at three in the morning, still fighting the urge it's probably going to calm down. It's peaking rapidly. And then you can often just kind of surf that urge, let the wave build up and you just kind of surf and the, over the wave and it will diminish. So what I say to myself is, listen, I can sit with this urge for half an hour. I can do hard things. I birthed two babies. I made it through medical school and I learned how to cook a tuna steak on the grill. (laughs) I can sit with this urge. I really believe in myself. I can do it. And I'm going to, I'm practicing. So here is one thing that I really like about this exercise. Let's say 20 minutes into it, I'm like, you know what? I just can't stand anymore. (laughs) Where's the spoon? And I go get the ice cream and I'm going to town on the ice cream. I actually still practiced 
Because if last week or last month I sat with that urge for 30 seconds before I went and got the ice cream or two minutes, I've already sat with it for 10 minutes, 20 minutes. That's practice. So just like if you're practicing for the Olympics, you have to have a certain amount of distress tolerance, right? Like if you are learning how to do some sort of flip on the balance beam, you know you're going to fall down. You're not like, oh, forget it. I fell off the beam. I guess I just am never going to make it to the Olympics. <laughs> no, you're like, all right, brush myself off. Let me try again. And you just keep trying. You keep showing up for yourself. You try again. You anticipate it's normal to fall. It's normal to, <laughs> my husband always makes fun of me. I like to call it failing forward. I'm like, I failed yep. forward with the ice cream. <laughs> but the more times I fail forward, the more times I practice, the more times I remind myself that I can do hard things and I can sit with these emotions or this urge or this desire without acting on it, I get a little better at it. Get a little better. I get a little better. And now I have to tell you, sometimes ice cream sits here for a shocking amount of time before I get into it. And sometimes I never get into it. And sometimes everyone else has had what they want and it's sitting there for a week, half eaten, and I throw it in the garbage. And I feel great about doing that. And that never would have happened before. But that's because of practice, practice, practice. It's boring. You know, you fall down and you try again. Can I just say something about the math of that? Sorry. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, please. Back to you. So for your listeners, think about how many times you have had a bingey episode. Maybe it's a hundred, maybe it's a thousand, maybe it's 10,000 times, whatever it is. And think about how many times you've practiced sitting with the urge without acting on it. That's different from resisting. Resisting is that feeling of trying to push a beach ball under the water and hold it down. It's going to pop up, right? Or pushing against a door when someone's pushing in the other direction. That's resisting. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying sit with it. Just feel the urge and tell yourself it's not hurting you. You're not bleeding out. You're not going to die from it. You can sit with it. And then just recognize the math. If you acted on the last 5,000 urges for ice cream, it's going to take more than two or three tries of this strategy before you get good at sitting with an urge. So it, you might do it a hundred times before you start to notice that the urge comes up less often. That's what we're looking for. Not only getting better at managing the urge, but just like not having as many urges. That's a piece of it. That is a piece of it. Yeah. And that was actually sort of what I was going to ask, which is, how do we talk ourselves out of the shame or the guilt after a binge? And I think what you just shared oh, is a piece yeah. of it, right? That self-compassion to recognize how many times have I practiced the other way versus how many times I've practiced this. Like I'm new at this. It's still practice and it's still progress. Yeah, exactly. And just allowing yourself to be imperfect. I mean, I hope I'm an example of that for anyone listening. I have been working in the weight loss field for about a decade. I am board certified in obesity medicine. I'm a certified weight loss coach. I have been interested in this field since I was nine years old. Like I have a lot of experience. I still sometimes binge on the ice cream, but the more I practice, the better I get. It's so, you know, it's so infrequent now. And when I do, that's the other thing is how do you bounce back? So I have this really dorky thing I made up that you, anyone is welcome to make up their own better thing. But I wipe my hand across my forehead like I'm sweating and I go, no sweat, reset. And I hold my left hand up like I've got a big reset button sitting there and I push the top of the reset button with my right finger. No sweat, wipe my brow, reset, push the reset button. I love that. I just give myself a reminder, like, no sweat, that happened. Okay, I had some ice cream, but I'm just going to reset. I'm going to show up again tomorrow to sit with the urge. And I'm not going to trash talk myself because I love myself. This isn't my fault. I didn't choose this, but I have the skill set to practice sitting with urges, to practice brushing myself off and bouncing back and trying again tomorrow and being loving to myself and recognizing I'm a good person, totally worthy. I'm not bad. I'm not weak-willed. Any of that nonsense that we sometimes tell ourselves. 
And so that compassion is so key. And working with someone who knows what they're doing. There are a lot of therapy techniques that will kind of help people with their own self-esteem and self-compassion and love while working on eating challenges or disordered eating. Great. And I think I love that to sort of put a pin in it for today. And, you know, I'll throw it out there to everybody. Play with this and then send us your questions. We can always do a follow-up or sort of the next piece of, you know, binge eating. Awesome. That's so All wonderful. Right. There are so many more techniques. We'll talk again <laughs> We'll get there. Yeah. Share more. All right. So it's time for a rapid fire off-topic questions that I ask every expert. You ready? I'm ready. I should have prepped for this. No, no. <laughs> I can't wait. Okay. It's better when you don't. Okay. What's the best thing you've done for your health this week? What's the naughtiest thing you've done related to your health this week? Oh, that's great. Okay. Best thing I've done for my health, getting out and walking, even though I broke my toe and then I stubbed my broken toe two days later. Now, I didn't walk the day I broke my toe, but you know what I did is I figured out I can wear a flip-flop and it worked and I just decided, you know what, that this is not me being a hardcore, crazy exerciser. This is me saying... Some fresh air is amazing for my mood and feels good in my body. And I don't want to sit around and be held back if I can find a workaround that's not making it worse. So that was the best thing I did. What was the worst thing I did? Oh, for sure. I know not getting enough sleep, which correlates with poor food choices, more binginess, weight gain. I know better. I was up late at night, like working on my next Instagram post with my assistant who sent me a bunch of good stuff. Like, ah, I know better. (laughs) All right. If you weren't a physician and coach, what would you do? Oh, okay. Well, I kind of have two things. Maybe I can blend them together. So one is I used to always answer this question. I would say my whole career saying I would be a teacher. And so I did teach in the medical school at Northwestern and teach residents and you know, I've taught other things. I like to go and teach groups about health and wellness and weight loss and that kind of stuff. But I have a new hobby. I don't think I'll ever be good enough to be a teacher, but you never know. If I wasn't a physician, I actually think I would like to become a tango dancer. (laughs) I like it. It's very fun. Your favorite book on any topic other than your area of expertise could be fiction. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, I'm thinking of one that comes to mind. I don't know if it's very flattering for me, but it's just like a fascinating piece of literature. So I love Nabokov, and that's how his name is pronounced, not Nabokov, Nabokov, and Vladimir Nabokov. And any of his books are so interesting to me. I love Russian literature. So Lolita is an amazing one. He has a lot of great books. Awesome. Um, it's disturbing and amazing. So yeah, <laughs> something by him. <laughs> All right. If you could cure one ailment, disease, or sickness, what would it be? Oh my gosh, it would be excess weight because you know yeah. what? Then everything else would go down. Less totally. cancer, less heart disease, less diabetes, less depression, less knee arthritis, and all the things. That's what I do. (laughs) If you were a superhero, what would be your superpower? Oh, I think it, (laughs) I feel like, you know, that cartoon character Tigger, who's got like a spring and is always bouncing. I get like really excited about (laughs) this topic and any topic that I have a passion for. I feel like I'm always really like Tigger, like kind of bouncing. So I think if I was a superhero, my superpower would be I could just like spring up in the air and bounce long distances to go spread whatever message I'm super enthusiastic about, which you guys know what that is. (laughs) Awesome. What's your biggest pet peeve? Oh, my biggest pet peeve is when people come to work with me and They're not willing to put on a learner's hat. Every single person I work with has been trying to lose weight for years and years. They know a lot about nutrition. They know a lot about exercise. They know a lot about, I'm going to put this in air quotes, what they should do, but they're not having success. 
And most people come in with a wonderful attitude because they know I'm not just going to say things like, oh, candy's bad for you. Potato chips are bad for you. I'm like, that's not what I'm doing. I'm sharing like some really new, exciting science and things that I hope will be unique and actionable and helpful to them. And when someone comes in and they're just, they have no belief in their self that they can lose weight and they're blocking themselves and blocking me from learning that it's actually possible. It's my pet peeve because I know it's possible for anyone to manage binge eating. I know it's possible for anyone to lose weight, but you have to kind of put on that learner's hat. If like me, you've been doing it for years and years and that way isn't working, like, all right, just like sit back, pull up a chair, grab a glass of water. Let's chat and be open, be open. All right. Finally, in your opinion, what's the next frontier in wellness? Oh, that's such a wonderful question. I think the next frontier in wellness is really just genetically related. We are getting more and more information about genetics and using artificial intelligence, using AI, we can combine genetic information with what are we eating? What's in our environment? We can plug in other data and let AI use AI to analyze correlations and links and causation and just figure out for each of us on a very personalized level, how should we be eating? We're not quite there yet. People sell stuff related to that already, but you know, it's emerging science. That's the next frontier. Excellent. Well, Lisa, thank you again for being here. Tell everybody how to connect with you. Oh, thank you so much. All right. Well, so I have a website, smartweightlosscoaching.com. And you can find me, Lisa Olson, MD, on Instagram. You can also find me at my medical practice where I meet with people who live in Illinois. That's oldsonmedical.com. My last name is O-L-D-S-O-N, Old Sun Medical. Thank you. Excellent. Yeah. Do you have another minute to hang out for our nutrition nugget? Absolutely. Bring Perfect. it on. This week, we're talking about visualization. Oh, so you're probably okay. thinking what does this have to do with my health? (laughs) Right? I hear you. (laughs) So you might recall also, we did a nutrition nugget a few months ago about the word don't and how our brains cannot compute the word. So today's nutrition nugget is a bit along those same lines in terms of how we can work with our mind and our subconscious mind to make life and healthful decisions easier. Now, with visualization, we often hear about it in terms of dream boards And even more, we hear about it with athletes. So Billie Jean King, Greg Louganis, Lindsey Vaughn, Muhammad Ali, Tiger Woods, Michael Phelps, right? These are just a few of the big name athletes who have talked about visualization. So the question is, what is it and why does it work, right? I describe it as like a mental rehearsal. So we picture the situation going as we'd like it to go. And part of why it works is because the brain doesn't know the difference between reality and imagination. So when we visualize a situation, it's the same as fact to the brain. So in a work context, it could look like visualizing the presentation going really well. In a health context, we can mentally walk through, you know, maybe it's our commute home where we go straight home or to the next thing without stopping for the dollar discounted donuts, right? Or we could imagine the holiday barbecue, right? Fourth of July is just around the corner. We could imagine the holiday barbecue as we'd like it to be, as we want our behavior to be. And so we play it out mentally. And then when we're in the actual situation, our body and mind think they've already been there. They've already done it. So this might seem like a bunch of nonsense, but I promise you, it's real. (laughs) So visualization leverages what we call the reticular activating system in the brain. So the part of the brain that's sorting through to decide what's important and what's not important. So it's why you could hear your child's voice in a crowd, but not hear the stranger standing next to you, right? We learn, our brain learns what to pay attention to. So the visualization and the reticular activating system are basically telling the brain this situation is important. Our visualization puts that situation in the important category and ensures that we'll notice it when it arises. 
So there's also a piece of this, you know, with neuroscience, we talk about neuropathways, right? So since our brain sees reality and imagination, both as fact, the visualization triggers neurons to react as if the imagined situation is really happening and forming a new pathway or deepening a pathway that already exists. So again, it's why the real life situation is easier when we're physically in it because our brain has done this before, so to speak, right? Then there's also a connection to the motor cortex of the brain. So if we're thinking about, and this is particular for athletes, but I think for us too. So if we think about the body doing something like walking or dare I say running, you guys know I hate running, right? (laughs) Or even just moving our limbs, it activates the motor cortex of the brain. So this then helps us in real life move more efficiently and effectively as the situation arises. So our brain learns movements that we do all the time, our routines, right? And that becomes part of how they become more automatic. So visualization allows new situations to become more like routines in the same way. So I just think it's interesting to note Visualization may also help us move on from failure. So Dr. Nicole Detling is a renowned sports psychologist. She's worked with quite a few of the U.S. Olympic teams. I know it was like 2010, 2014, 2018. Anyway, she specializes in helping athletes use visualization techniques for peak performance. And one of the things she notes is that visualization forces us to focus on what's next as opposed to focusing on what happened in the past. So visualization can help us move past those mistakes, right? She says, in any sport or life, the most important play is always the next one. I love that. A little tip on visualization here. So think about perspective. So a lot of times when we imagine ourselves, we imagine situations in the third person, right? We're like watching ourselves or we think about a book being narrated right? We see all the things happening. We see ourselves in that situation. Some experts argue that visualization is more effective to visualize it in the first person. So we see what's around us similar to how we would see it in real life when we're in that situation. The idea, I guess, is that this may activate muscles more powerfully and helps make the action we visualize more consistent and believable. So Interestingly enough, this is also the mechanism at play when we see visualization helping patients recover from injury and stroke or, you know, things requiring physical rehab. So taking this to our everyday health context, right? Like I said, July 4th is around the corner. Maybe that barbecue poses a challenge or you feel like you're struggling every evening when you're sitting on the couch, right? So visualize it. How do you want it to go? Mentally rehearse it. And I recommend actually doing this a few times. So sometimes I'll walk through this with my clients. We'll do it out loud over and over. So perhaps you picture yourself putting the appetizers on a plate and then walking away from the table to eat them. Or maybe it's visualizing sitting on the couch, walking to the kitchen, putting together a beautiful bowl of berries, maybe sprinkling some walnuts on top, and then sitting back down on the couch to enjoy, right? For those sort of challenged with maybe finding time for your activity, Picture it, right? What do you do? First thing in the morning, act it out in your mind. The alarm goes off, you get up, you wash your face, brush your teeth, put on your workout clothes, put on your sneakers, head out the door. Mentally repeat it, right? Do it again. Your alarm clock goes off, you get up, you wash your face, brush your teeth, put on your workout clothes, put on your sneakers, head out the door, right? So remember, it's progress over perfection. Our mental rehearsal can make these real life situations easier. And we can create that muscle memory and routines in our minds because to our brain, we already are the person who does these actions. All right, Lisa, any comments or something to add on the visualization? Yeah, I love that. And so I use that also. And it's so interesting. This has been an evolution for me. I read a lot of books on sports psychology just for this reason, because I find it incredibly helpful when coaching people on weight management or on binge eating. Visualization is great. And also like rebounding from, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to call it failure, but rebounding from you dropped the ball, you didn't run the way you were supposed to, you didn't do the flip the way you were supposed to. How do you bounce back like an Olympic athlete? That is, I call it the weight loss Olympics. We have a whole section on it. 
in my program. You know, the one thing I'm going to give you a little nugget when you talked about visualization that I find really helpful for my people, the late night eating is such a challenge very often for people who are trying to struggle with weight. And this isn't just specific for binge eating. It's for many of us. And so if you want to interrupt that nighttime eating, I won't even talk about what we do with Netflix and turning that off, but I'm just going to invite people to visualize, to create, type it up or write it down, create your bedtime rituals. And then you picture yourself going through them. And in particular, the two things I find the most helpful for people to visualize, as silly as it sounds, if you live in a home where there are stairs that you take to go up to your bedroom, picturing your bedtime routine and picture yourself walking up the stairs at a certain time. Picture yourself, you look at your clock, you look at your phone, your watch, whatever. You check the time. You see, oh, it's 1030. Picture yourself walking up the stairs towards your bedroom. Picture yourself going into your bathroom and putting some toothpaste on your toothbrush and brushing your teeth. And to me, those two things, picturing yourself leaving the food area and brushing your teeth, they're so effective to eliminate that late night eating. Why are we so unwilling to have to brush our teeth a second time. I don't know. I kind of like brushing my teeth, but I'm not going to do it. Like, oh, my teeth are already brushed. I guess I can't have that chocolate. (laughs) That's right. Awesome. I love it. Well, Lisa, thank you again for being here. Just appreciate your time and your energy and your expertise. Thank you so much, Jen. It's been a pleasure. So as always, everybody, I'm your host, Jen Trepic. Connect with me on Instagram or really all social media. I'm at Jen Trepic, J-E-N-N-T-R-E-P-E-C-K. Consider this your personal invitation. Send me a message through social media or the website. I want to hear from you, your key takeaways, your ideas, your questions. This is also the easiest way to learn more about working with me. And of course, if you're not already, join our membership program by going to glow.fm slash salad with a side of fries to show your support for this podcast, this community, but above all, support your health. You'll get this week's recipe for the seared tuna with tomato, olive, and caper salad and details for your live quarterly one-on-one with me. So until next week, everybody, remember, it's all practice, and it's about the energy behind our actions that deserves our attention. Well, friends, that's it for today's episode of Salad with a Side of Fries. Congratulations for making yourself and your health a priority. Thanks so much for joining us. Be sure to click subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast platform, share us with a friend, and we'll be back next week. Always remember, you deserve it and you are worth it. Happy healthy.